Please open your Bibles to Matthew 13. And let's begin by reading our passage for today, which is for the second week in a row, Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43. In this passage, Jesus teaches three different parables, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, and the parable of the leaven. Last week, we took a look at the parable of the weeds. This week, we're going to look at the other two parables, the the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. Let's begin by reading the entire section together. Once again, that's Matthew 13, 24 to 43. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds First, and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. We live in an incredibly impatient culture. You can see it all around you. The signs of it are everywhere. Practically everything in our society is geared to deliver what we want in the shortest amount of time possible. You run to the grocery store and the shelves are filled with foods that can be prepared with as little effort as possible in the shortest amount of time possible. There is instant oatmeal and instant coffee and instant soup. There are box dinners that you can cook in less than 15 minutes. There are TV dinners and frozen vegetables and snacks that you can heat with a microwave in a matter of seconds. You go to checkout and there are express checkout lines so that you don't have to wait in line behind people with, that are making large purchases. There are even self-checkout stations that basically keeping you from having to wait in line at all. So long as you're willing to scan your items, then, then you can get home even faster. 
You're on your way out of the store, and maybe on your way out, you decide to stop by the red box machine by the front door and pick up a movie to watch later that night. That's such a convenience, isn't it? There's no need to drive to the movie store halfway across town. You don't don't need to sort through some endless supply of movies and then stand in line to rent the movie. All you have to do is just stop by Redbox, and in three minutes, you can select the movie you want and check out and go home. So maybe you stop by Redbox, but on your way out of the store, there's a line of people there. Never mind, right? You don't want to wait in line for that. You don't need Redbox. You can just watch something online instead. So you leave without your movie. You jump in the car, and if you're living in a big enough city, you might even jump into the expressway on your way home. No need to wait in traffic. While you're driving, your spouse decides they want to contact you, and so they send you a text message. Your phone dings or buzzes or vibrates, and instantly you have what they wanted to say to you. You don't have to wait until you get home for them to talk to you. They don't even have to call you. They just text you and tell you what they wanted to say. But in broken English, of course, because it takes too long to write full sentences, the text says, stop by B of A, need dollar sign. That means stop by the Bank of America on the way home and pick up cash. That in and of itself is a very unusual request. After all, who demands cash anymore, right? Well, unfortunately, some people still do. So you stop by a bank on the way home, grab some cash for for your spouse. But it's no big hassle. You don't even have to get out of the car. Just drive up to the ATM and you have your cash in hand in less than a minute, maybe less. You come home and flip on the TV while you put your groceries away and and you turn on the cable news station that broadcasts news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so that you can get the news anytime you want without having to wait. And after you put the groceries away, you jump online to check social media where you get instant updates from your family and friends about what's going on uh, on in their day. And if you're on a platform like Twitter, you can even get those updates in 140 characters or less. No no need for details, right? You don't need to get everything that's going on about them. Just, Just get the gist of it and from as many of your friends as you can in the next five minutes so that you can be informed about their lives and move on to the next thing. Maybe after you decide, after that you decide to visit a website, maybe even a news at website, since that 24-hour news channel didn't cover the topic you wanted to hear when you tuned in. And once you get there, you see a video on the, on the news that you wanted to hear about, because who wants to spend time actually reading about the news, and we can see a video summary of it in less than a minute. You click on the video, and an ad pops up, which is frustrating, because that means you have to wait to watch your video. But no worries, because after the first 10 seconds or so, a link shows up in the corner that allows you to skip the ad so you can move right on to the video. And we could go on. But you get the picture, right? We live in an incredibly impatient culture. Waiting is hard. It's hard to have to wait for the things that you want. And if there's any people that should understand this point, it is us. So how do you do it? How do you wait for the things you want. Last week I said that if you're thinking rightly, if you're thinking scripturally, then you should be impatient for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. That's what you should really be longing for. That's what you should be anxious about. What you should be looking forward to. There's a day coming when Jesus will return. And when He returns, He will remove all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That should be an exciting thought. To consider a world in which 
There is no sin or evil to destroy or corrupt our enjoyment of God. If you have the Spirit dwelling in you, if God has transformed you so that you long for righteousness, then you are excited by this thought. You long for the day when the sin that clouds your vision of the glory of God is removed. You long for the day when the beauty of God is fully manifested over the entire earth. When, when you will get to sit and dwell with Him in unbroken fellowship, soaking in the full blessing of His presence with uninterrupted joy. That's a glorious future that you have in front of you. And you should be incredibly eager for it to arrive right now. The problem is, it may be a while. In case you haven't noticed, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus promised the coming of the kingdom of heaven. It hasn't come yet. And that's not unexpected. Jesus predicted this would happen. We saw this in the parable of the weeds last week. When you get into that parable, what you see is that it explains that the coming of the kingdom of heaven and and the judgment of that kingdom in particular, the, the destruction of the wicked and the establishment of righteousness, Jesus said that would be a slow affair. The common expectation in Israel at this time was that once the Messiah had arrived, judgment would soon follow thereafter. That was actually the prerequisite for the kingdom of heaven. After all, the purpose of the kingdom of God was to establish the visible reign of God over the entire earth. By necessity, this required the destruction of the wicked. After all, all evil had to be removed in order for God to, to, uh, for His kingdom to be manifested. That was necessary for God's rule to be revealed in all things. This naturally meant that judgment had to precede the establishment of God's kingdom. All evil and every unrighteous thing had to be removed and destroyed before God's kingdom could be instituted. Therefore, if the Messiah had appeared proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of heaven, it was assumed that judgment wouldn't be far behind. That is what everyone in Israel believed. Well, in the parable of the weeds, Jesus corrected this expectation. He revealed to His disciples that this was not true. This is not how the kingdom would work. It would not come immediately. Instead, it would be a slow affair. The wicked would not be judged immediately after His arrival. Instead, there would be an extended period of time before judgment came during which the wicked would be allowed to live side by side along with the righteous. That is what the parable of the weeds explained. That that was the secret of the kingdom that it explained. And, And through this, it revealed that the kingdom of God would not be immediate. So, the kingdom of heaven may be amazing. And it may be something that you should be excited for. But it may yet be a while before it comes. Meaning you're going to have to wait. How are you supposed to do that? How are you going to manage to wait so long for such a tremendous blessing? Let's assume that you are thinking scripturally and that your greatest desire is to see Jesus come back and reign over the earth. How are you going to manage to be patient and wait for that to happen, given what Jesus is saying about how it's going to take a while before He does this? That's the question that I want to try to answer for you this morning. And I'm going to do it with the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. 
from Matthew 13, verses 31 to 35. So once again, our passage for today is Matthew 13, 24 to 43. We looked at most of this passage last week when we examined the parable of the weeds. Today, we're going to close out our study of these verses by looking at verses 31 to 35, which includes the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. And the question I'm going to try to answer for you from these parables is, how do we muster up the patience to wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to show us, He's going to show us this in these parables. He's going to show us why we need to wait. And I'll explain how He does that for you. Before we really jump into these parables, let's read that section of this passage one more time. Matthew 13, 31-35. Matthew says, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. We're currently in this section of Matthew where Jesus is disclosing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, which is to say that Jesus is revealing truths about the kingdom that are intended only for insiders. These are for those in the know, so to speak. These are kingdom truths that are meant for those who have responded positively to Jesus' kingdom message and belong to His kingdom. And Jesus is disclosing these secrets in the form of parables. That's what we saw back in Matthew 13, 10 to 11. There the disciples came to Jesus, asking him why he spoke to the crowds in parables. And Jesus answered them. He said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So that's what's going on here in chapter 13. Jesus is describing truths about the kingdom of heaven. But he's not intending to, intending to reveal these truths to everyone. These are kingdom secrets. And so he's telling these secrets in the form of parables. A, a parable is a kind of story. It's an analogy that illustrates and explains some particular truth. However, the purpose of these parables here in chapter 13 is not to reveal truth, but to hide it. They are intended to, to reveal truth, but to reveal truth only to those to whom Jesus intends. Thus, there is a selective kind, of, selective kind of teaching taking place here in the form of these parables. Up to this point, Jesus has taught the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, both of which explained different aspects to the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the sower, there is this sower who goes out and casts seeds in all different types of ground with varying degrees of success. This parable we saw explained why some people were responsive to Jesus' kingdom message and why others weren't. The parable of the weeds is about a farmer whose field is sabotaged by an enemy who who sows this dangerous weed into his wheat in an attempt to destroy the farmer's crops. This parable explained the the slowness of the kingdom. It revealed that, that the judgment that everyone expected to happen immediately wouldn't happen immediately. There would be this intermediary period before the establishment of God's kingdom when the sons of the devil would be allowed to grow side by side along with the sons of the kingdom. 
So both parables teach something about the kingdom. One teaches about those who respond to the message of the kingdom. It teaches about those who will and who will not enter into that kingdom. The other parable explains the timing of the kingdom. Now we come to the third and fourth parables presented in the chapter, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven. When you take a look at these parables, it would appear at first glance that these parables reveal the slow but growing movement of the kingdom of heaven. In the parable of the mustard seed, Jesus speaks of the tiny mustard seed growing into this gigantic plant, even going so far as to call it a tree. It becomes a plant so large that even the birds can come and make a nest in it. The mustard plant becomes that big, that strong. It can support that kind of weight, even though it comes from this proverbially tiny seed. The mustard seed would have been the tiniest of all known seeds in ancient Palestine, and yet it grew into this massive plant, sometimes 9 or 12 or even 15 feet tall. It was a plant that became so big that, in fact, according to one commentator, it was often said not to plant such in a garden because it took up so much space. So the parable becomes this picture of how the kingdom will begin with humble origins before eventually going on to grow into this massive enterprise. It's a story describing the growth of the kingdom of heaven. And just like we saw with the parable of the weeds, there is this idea that the kingdom will be a gradual affair. It won't be something that just kind of, boom, explodes instantly. There's a growth period. It's going to start small and expand. But before it's all said and done, it will be this massive plant. In fact, it will even become the biggest of all the plants in the garden. Likewise, the parable of the leaven seems to hit on the slow and steady growth of the kingdom. When you take a piece of leavened dough and place it in a batch of unleavened bread, the leaven eventually spreads to the entire batch. The leaven permeates the entire batch of unleavened bread, and so the whole batch becomes leavened. Here Jesus speaks of a woman hiding a bit of leaven in three measures of flour. That's the equivalent to about 50 pounds of flour, which is a lot of dough. Well, this little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump of dough. So again, you have this idea where something small goes on to grow into something big. Now, it might be tempting at first to think that these two parables are therefore just repeating the same principle, that they're both speaking of this growth of something small into something big. However, if you pan out and take a broader look at the meaning of the elements of these parables, you can see that they're actually talking about very similar and yet very different ideas. For example, if you look at the parable of the mustard seed, You see, once again, that there is this reference to the birds of the air taking their shelter in the branches of the mustard plant. That's not just a reference to the size and the strength of this plant. That's a reference to a very specific image mentioned a few different times in the Old Testament. Probably the most well-known example of this image occurs in Daniel 4, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that he brings to Daniel. And in this dream, a tree of great, great height grows in the midst of the earth, and its, tops, its top reaches into the heavens, and it becomes visible across the entire earth. In the words of Daniel, its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it, was, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens, heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
Nebuchadnezzar asks his wise men for an interpretation of this dream. Only Daniel is able to provide it. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar that he is the tree. He says, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Thus, this tree image represents Nebuchadnezzar and the, and the dominion that he enjoys over the earth. The beasts of the field that find shade under it, the birds of the heavens living in its branches, these represent those nations that have come under the dominion of Nebuchadnezzar. They are the nations that are even protected by and fed by Babylon. That's the meaning of this image when we see it appear in Daniel 4. The tree and the birds represents this great and expansive kingdom, a kingdom so large that even other nations come and find shelter in its branches. And this isn't the only time this imagery is used. Ezekiel uses the same imagery in Ezekiel 31, only this time in reference to the kingdom that preceded Babylon, the empire of Assyria. God says with reference to Assyria in Ezekiel 31, Verses 3 to 6, he says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon with beautiful branches and forest shade and of towering height, its top among the clouds. The waters nourished it. The deep made it grow tall, making its rivers flow around the place of its planting, sending forth its streams to all the trees of the field. So it towered high above all the trees of the field. Its bows grew large and its branches long from abundant water in its shoots. And then he says, All the birds of the heavens made their nests in its bows. Under its branches, all the beasts of the field gave birth to their young, and under its shadow lived all the great nations. So once again, we have this picture of the tree with the birds nesting in its branches. This is a picture of an expansive kingdom so large that other nations come and live under it and in it. However, as it relates to our verse today, probably the most significant use of this imagery occurs just a few chapters earlier in Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel 17, verse 22. Ezekiel 17, verse 22. In Ezekiel 17, God gives a parable, a riddle to Ezekiel, in which an eagle comes to Lebanon and rips off the top of a cedar and carries it away into a land of trade and prosperity. He also takes seed from the land of Lebanon and spreads it throughout his land where it prospers and becomes a low-spreading vine. However, before long, there is another eagle. And the vine turns to this second eagle instead of the first. And while it is still rooted in the land of the first eagle, it reaches out its branches to the second one. It even bends its roots towards the second eagle, even though it has found protection and prosperity under the first eagle. Ezekiel goes on to explain that the first eagle represents Babylon, and the second eagle, Egypt. The top of the cedar represents the Davidic line, or rather, the Davidic king, Jehoiachin, who was deported to Babylon after the Babylonians first conquered Jerusalem. The seed represents Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah, who Nebuchadnezzar set in place to serve as king over Israel in Jehoiachin's stead. The vine stretching out to the second eagle represents this time when Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon and sent ambassadors to Egypt requesting Pharaoh's help. God goes on to rebuke the king for his attempts to rebel against Babylon. He says that he too will be dragged in a net to Babylon where he will be judged for his sin. But then God says this in verses 22 to 24. Ezekiel says, Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. 
I will break off the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And listen here. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I will bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Can you tell what that's a reference to? The top of the cedar is the Davidic line. And God says He's going to take just a sprig from the very top of this treetop and He's going to plant it in Israel where it will become this great and magnificent kingdom. Can you see, this is what Isaiah referred to as the shoot from the stump of Jesse. This is the Messiah, the the Davidic king who would establish a kingdom that would span across the whole earth. That's what this passage in Ezekiel is talking about. So flash forward to our verse where Jesus talks about a mustard seed that grows into a tree. And keep in mind, a mustard plant is not a tree. A mustard plant is a big plant. But Jesus talks about this mustard seed as a tree that grows so large that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And what do you think that he's referring to? He's talking about this global kingdom that's going to be established under his reign. The the kingdom is going to start small like this mustard seed, but before it's all said and done, it's going to be this expansive kingdom. A kingdom so large that other nations will come and even nest in its branches. So if we're trying to understand the meaning of the mustard seed, it's not just about the slow and steady growth of the kingdom. Rather, it's about the coming size of this kingdom. This is going to be a kingdom of great size. It starts small, but in the end, its borders are going to stretch out across the entire earth. The leaven, likewise, is a very unique and has a very unique and specific meaning. It may be tempting to assume that the leaven leaven is a reference to evil spreading throughout the body of Christ, since leaven is sometimes referred to in in New Testament passages that speak about the spreading of evil. For example, in Luke 12.1, Jesus warns the disciples, quote, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Likewise, in two different instances, in 1 Corinthians 5.6 and in Galatians 5.9, Paul instructs his readers about the dangers of associating with evil and sinful men, saying, A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The idea in all three of these passages is that if a person is not careful, the corruption of others will spread to them like leaven in a lump of dough. Passages like these can lead us to think that this is what Jesus is saying with this parable. He's warning His disciples that evil will eventually pervade and corrupt the church. That's the small thing expanding out into the big. A little bit of evil will eventually corrupt the entire body of Christ. The implication being, of course, that the disciples need to be watchful. They need to guard themselves against this corrupting influence. But if you notice here, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like the leaven, not the lump of dough. Jesus doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a lump of dough that a woman took and hid a small measure of leaven in. No, he says it is like the leaven that is inside the dough. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is the one doing the so-called corrupting in this passage. It's spreading throughout the dough. Leaven isn't a symbol of evil in this parable. It's a symbol of the influencing effect of the kingdom. It is a picture of how the kingdom will expand and grow. 
In fact, if you stop to think about it, this is how leaven is used in all of the New Testament passages that make reference to it. In every single instance, leaven is used with reference to the fact that it spreads, it grows. When Jesus warns about the leaven of the Pharisees, he's warning the disciples not just about their hypocrisy, but about the fact that their hypocrisy spreads, it's passed on to others. The same thing can be said with reference to Paul's warnings in 1 Corinthians and Galatians as well. The reason he brings up leaven is not because leaven is inherently a picture of evil, it's because leaven is a picture of this pervasive spreading influence. The truth is that culturally, leaven was often seen as a good thing in ancient Israel. For example, John MacArthur notes this. He says, When a Jewish girl was married, her mother would give a small piece of leavened dough from a batch baked just before the wedding. From the gift of leaven, the bride would bake the bread for her household throughout her married life. That gift, simple as it was, was among the most cherished that the bride received because it represented the love and blessedness of the household in which she grew up. And that would be carried into the household she was about to establish. According to MacArthur, a rabbi even once wrote, quote, Great is peace, and that peace is to the earth as leaven is to the dough. So leaven isn't necessarily bad. That's not why someone would bring up the picture of leaven to speak of something evil. Rather, they bring it up to speak of something that spreads. Leaven symbolizes influence, and this parable represents the eventual pervasive influence of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom isn't going to start with this overwhelming power. It's going to start small. In fact, like the leaven in this parable, you may not even be able to see it when it first begins. It's practically invisible. And yet, Though though the actual existence of this kingdom may be hard to pin down, though it doesn't have this incredibly visible presence, its effects will be felt if it's given enough time. Before it's all said and done, its presence may be hard to see, but it will be most certainly felt. It's going to completely transform everything that it comes in contact with. So these parables aren't really talking about the same thing. Yes, both are talking about this idea that the the kingdom is going to experience this slow and steady movement from insignificance to significance, but it's it's going to grow from something large into something big, but they're not repeating each other. They're each talking about kingdom growth from a different perspective. The parable of the mustard seed speaks of the expansiveness of the kingdom. It will be a kingdom whose domain eventually incorporates all the nations of the earth. The parable of the leaven speaks of the growing influence of the kingdom. It is a kingdom that will permeate and spread its influence, its culture, so to speak, throughout the entire earth. That's what it would seem like these parables are teaching at first glance. And if we were to just stop right there, that would be enough to chew on for a little while. These parables parables would teach us about the patience that we should have as disciples for the coming of the the kingdom. Again, we're living in an incredibly impatient culture. It's very easy to think or, or to allow for this thinking to bleed into our thinking as well. Really, if we're being completely honest with ourselves, we can admit to ourselves that it probably already has. It's infiltrated the church. It affects the way we think about the kingdom of God. Ours is a microwave Christianity that expects instant results. We expect churches to be constantly doubling their membership or they are failures. 
We expect someone to accept Christ right there on the spot. They need to walk the aisle and pray the prayer right then and there, or else we're not evangelizing effectively. Even in our own sanctification, we expect instant results. We pray to God to help us with some sin, and then if it doesn't happen right away, we start to wonder if we prayed the right way. We start to wonder if maybe God didn't hear us, or maybe we misunderstood what we should be asking for. These parables can remind us that we should probably adjust our expectations. We're not going to win the world for Christ in a generation, and yet we can know that if we are only patient, the kingdom will advance. It will continue to prosper and grow. These parables can do that. They can call us to take our eyes off of the results and to simply focus on being faithful. They can call us to stop thinking that just because something doesn't work right away doesn't mean it's broken. They can call us to be patient. These parables can also give us confidence as we seek to advance the kingdom through the evangelization of the lost. Jesus told us that we would be rejected. That rejection, that that rejection should even be expected on our mission. That rejection would even come to characterize our mission. And this can be a disheartening thing to experience, to share the gospel and to be told, no thank you, over and over again. This can be incredibly discouraging. It can make you want to just quit sharing Christ altogether. These parables can remind you that there is always reason to keep at it, to keep pressing on in the work of the Great Commission. The results may not be immediate, but there will be results. You may share the gospel a hundred times before anyone expresses any interest, but someone will eventually express interest and the kingdom will advance. In fact, you may even share the gospel with one individual a hundred times before they express any desire to respond to it, but understand that through that process you're sowing seeds that may eventually bear fruit when you share the gospel with them for the hundred and first time. The kingdom may grow slowly, but it will continue to grow. So just persevere. Keep going. The fruit will eventually come. These parables can teach us that. If we accept these parables at face value, then they can also give us hope. Last week I explained that we should look forward to a world that is dominated by righteousness. And that can be hard to do when we look around and we see evil proliferating across the earth. Again, we can get easily discouraged and wonder, is Jesus ever going to act? Is evil going to win the day? Well, these parables can remind us that the answer to those questions are, yes, Jesus will act, and no, evil will not win the day. They remind us that that things might look bad now, but they can improve. They will improve. And that gives us hope in the present darkness. And these things are all true. These parables do speak of the expanding domain and influence of the kingdom of heaven. And and they do teach us to be both patient and confident in our efforts to advance the kingdom of heaven. And they show us that we can have hope in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. We can look forward to the coming redemption of this fallen world, even when it looks like evil will win. But there's something else going on here as well. Something that I think greatly enriches the significance of these parables. It was something that I had never noticed before until this week, and it comes in this explanatory statement that Matthew adds in verses 34 to 35. Look there, and let's read that statement one more time. Matthew says, All of these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, 
He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. To be completely honest, these parables have always presented a little bit of a problem for me. I don't know about you, but they have for me. And the reason is because the lesson they teach seems to go so contrary both to our experience and to so many passages that we find in the Scriptures. After all, they can make it seem as if the kingdom is going to grow and spread and gradually come to dominate the earth. And I mean, on one hand, I guess we can see that happening. After all, Jesus started with just 12 committed disciples. And it certainly exploded beyond that, right? Culturally, Christianity went from being this isolated, heretical, Jewish sect to the dominant world religion. Supposedly, some 2.2 billion people of the approximately 7 billion people on this planet claim to be Christians. That's almost a third of the world's population, and it makes Christianity the largest religion in the world today. It is a faith that certainly spans the globe. So you can perhaps see how the parable of the mustard seed has been fulfilled, is being fulfilled. And its influence extends even beyond that. Christianity certainly helped to transform Europe from a land largely populated by unenlightened barbarians into a continent that tends to lead the world in things like education and human rights. Even though many in the world reject Christ, no one can deny that those nations that have been touched by Christianity have seen their nation's influence for the better. So perhaps you can see how the parable of the leaven is being fulfilled in the world. Christianity has tended to have a positive influence on the cultures that it's come in contact with, even with those outside the church. But at the same time, does it really seem like there's just this inevitable, steady march towards victory going on? I mean, if you were to look around you right now, would you say that the church is growing would you say that it's this, this expanding mustard seed? Can you even say that it's having a leavening effect on our culture, let alone the entire world? So there are supposedly 2.2 billion people that believe in Christ. Do you really think that that number is anywhere close to accurately reflecting the number of truly regenerate people currently walking the planet? How many do you think there really are of that number? Would you say 10% of that number? of those who claim Christ? Let's be gracious. Let's say we took half that figure. Say that even 50% of the people claiming to be Christian were truly born again. That's about 1 billion believers, or about 14% of the world's population in 2,000 years. Don't get me wrong. 14% of the world's population is nothing to scoff at. To go from 12 followers to a billion, that's incredibly remarkable growth. But can you really say that the kingdom is permeating the earth? Can you really say that the kingdom of heaven is dominating the earth when, at least in my estimation, by extremely generous estimates, only about 3 out of 20 people believe? What do you do with this? And even more than that, how do you reconcile these parables with passages that clearly indicate that Christianity, at least in the present age, will not dominate the earth? After all, just think of the other statements that Jesus has made earlier in this gospel. 
as Jesus prepared to send his disciples on a mission in chapter 10, he actually told them that they would be hated by the world. And and really the picture he painted in that chapter was was mostly one of persecution. Back in chapter 5, he even went so far as to say that persecution was a sign of godliness. It was a mark of genuine righteousness. Jesus wasn't expecting this hugely popular response to his message. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to salvation and there are few who find it. But the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and there are many who enter into it. How do you reconcile passages like that with these parables? Even in the parable that we studied last week, in the parable of the weeds, it's clear that there's going to be an abundance of unbelievers right up until the very end of the age, right? How do you reconcile that kind of data And these uh, uh, kinds of scriptural statements with the message communicated here in the parables. To be completely honest with you, until this week, I didn't really know the answer to that question. I didn't know what to do with these parables. But then I began to look into this statement that Matthew makes in verses 34 and 35. And they started to make a lot more sense. Let me show you why. And just to give you a heads up, we're, we're starting to, to run a little short on time here, and there's a lot to say, so I'm going to make this explanation as brief as I possibly can. And if for some reason you're not tracking with me, you don't understand what I'm saying, you can maybe ask me to clarify after the service, or, of course, later tonight in our evening discussion, I can try to answer any questions you might have. So let's take a look at this. Here, here in verses 30, uh, 34 and 35, Matthew says that Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables. In fact, he wouldn't say anything to them at all without a parable. And this fulfilled what was written by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So you go. You, you read that and you go, okay, that's interesting. I wonder where it says that. Where does it predict that the Messiah would speak in parables? And this takes you back to Psalm 78, 78, verse 2, where you discover that this psalm did not predict that the Messiah would speak in parables. In Psalm 78, the psalmist, in this case Asaph, begins, he says, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that have been heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. And so he says he's going to speak in a parable. He's going to tell the people of what God has done, past tense, And then if you read the rest of the psalm, you find out that this is exactly what he does over the next 68 verses. The psalmist goes on to retell the deeds of God. To be more specific, he gives a brief history of Israel. And through this, he he recalls how God was gracious to Israel in spite of all their rebellion. That's the parable. That's the dark sayings of old. The things that we have heard and known that our fathers told us. So the psalm didn't predict that the Messiah would speak in parables. It was the parable it spoke of. And this isn't really a big deal. By now it has become evident that Matthew frequently uses this word fulfill, not in a predictive sense, but in, the, in a sense of comparison. This word for fulfill means to fill up or complete, and Matthew regularly uses it in his gospel to indicate that Jesus fills up or completes one or another Old Testament concept. 
And pretty consistently, he means it to indicate that there is a precedent for the things that Jesus is saying or doing. Jesus said and did a lot of unexpected things. And Matthew is basically saying, but if you remember, this is just like that time when, and then he gives an Old Testament example in order to demonstrate that although what Jesus was doing was unexpected, he wasn't exactly doing anything new. There was a precedent established in the Old Testament for the things that Jesus did and said in His ministry. People just tended to overlook those passages. That's what He's doing here in this psalm. The quotation of this psalm. Matthew is saying that when Jesus spoke in parables, it was like what Asaph did in Psalm 78. So you look at Psalm 78, and you say, how is what Jesus does here in Matthew 13, and in this section of Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43 in particular, how is this like what Asaph did in Psalm 78? And that's tricky. Because Asaph speaks, doesn't speak in a parable in the same way that Jesus does in Matthew 13. At least it doesn't seem so at first. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives these illustrations that are hard to understand without an interpretation. They're they're cryptic sayings that are hard to decipher. That's not what Asaph does. Asaph says he will speak in a parable, he will utter dark sayings of old, things that our fathers have told us, but then he goes on to say that he will, again, speak these things that have been heard and known, and, and, and he gives a history of Israel. And so far from meaning to hide these truths, he actually says, we will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. That's strange. If the parable is not cryptic, If it's not meant to hide truth, how is it still a parable? How is it like what Jesus is doing here in Matthew 13? Well, the answer comes from the meaning of this word parable, which is a bit hard to define because a parable is a story, but it's a symbolic story with a hidden meaning. And in fact, another word that you could use for it, one that would be very close in meaning, is the word riddle. A parable is a bit like a riddle. And in Psalm 78, this is what the psalmist says he will speak. That word for dark sayings, the word that Matthew translates as what has been hidden in Matthew 13. That word in Hebrew means basically riddle. Point is, the psalmist is uttering a story that is perplexing, that is hard to grasp. And if we're reading it in light of the psalm, then we understand that it's not the elements of the psalmist's story that are hard to decipher. He's he's very plain in his retelling of Israel's history. Rather, it's the meaning of this story that is perplexing, that's hard to grasp. And so you read the psalm, and you hear of God's dealings with Israel, and you ask yourself, what's so hard to grasp about all of this? And there's only one answer to that question. And it's the mercy of God. That's what's perplexing about the psalmist's story. The psalmist's story is easy to interpret. But to understand the truth behind it, that's very difficult. There's the mystery. How is God still merciful to Israel in spite of their rebellion? How do you explain that sort of grace? You can't really. It is, in a sense, without logic. It doesn't make sense. That's what the psalmist is saying in Psalm 78. So then, what does this tell us about Jesus' parables? Well, it helps us understand that that not all of them were necessarily difficult to interpret. 
But even when they were easy to interpret, they were still hard to understand. They explained truths that were perplexing. They taught things that even when they were understood were still hard to accept. In other words, Jesus isn't saying things, isn't just saying things in a confusing way. He's saying things that in and are of themselves confusing and hard to accept. Like when Jesus tells the people in John 6, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and the people go, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? That's what he's doing here as well. He's making statements that are hard to accept in order to harden those who have rejected the truth, while at the same time disclosing additional truth to those who are willing to accept it. Now, when you pan back out again, And look at the disciples' reaction to the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven. You'll notice that they don't seem to have any question as to the interpretation of this parable. In verse 36, they'll ask Jesus to explain the meaning of the parable of the weeds, but not the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. So it would appear that these were not difficult parables to interpret. Someone with a fairly basic understanding of the Old Testament could quickly understand how to interpret the parable. And what this means is that these parables must have explained truths that were hard for outsiders to accept. For Matthew to follow up these two parables specifically with this quotation about how these parables fulfilled Psalm 78 where the psalmist tells this story that reveals these theological truths that are difficult to fathom, it would seem to indicate that that's what's happening here too. The parable is easy enough to interpret, but what it has to say, that was apparently hard for Jesus' listeners to accept. So what was so hard to accept about these parables? Think about it. And consider that these two parables are grouped with the parable of the weeds. In verses 24 to 30. Consider what the psalmist had to say in Psalm 78. And how the principles revealed in that psalm might play out here as well. What did Jesus say was going to happen in the parable of the weeds? He said that judgment was going to be delayed, right? That it wasn't going to take place right away. Now, what does Jesus say about the kingdom of heaven in the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven? Or, to give you a hint, who is the kingdom of heaven going to affect according to these parables? The birds of the air are taking refuge in the branches of the mustard plant. Who are they? Who do those birds represent? It's the nations, right? The leaven is going to spread into the whole lump. What's that a reference to? Where is the leaven spreading? It's going out into the entire world, right? The picture we have in these parables is not of the Messiah destroying the nations. It's of Him including them in His kingdom. They are nesting in the branches of His kingdom. They are being destroyed by Him. They're being transformed. So then, who is going to benefit from the slow and steady advancement of the kingdom of heaven? Or to put it another way, who is going to receive the benefit of the delay in the Messiah's judgment? It's going to be the nations, isn't it? It's going to be Gentiles. 
Can you begin to see how what Jesus is saying here, even when it was clearly understood, would have been very hard for the self-righteous Israelite, for the type of Israelite who rejected Jesus' message? Can you see how it would have been hard for them to accept? In verses 24 to 30, Jesus explains that judgment is going to be delayed. And in verses 31 to 35, Jesus explains the result of this delayed judgment. And what is the result? It's Gentile salvation. The entire world is going to benefit from the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand? In these parables, Jesus is not saying that the kingdom of heaven is going to fill up and saturate the entire earth, is that the whole world is going to be converted or something like that. That's how you reconcile it with these other passages. What he's saying is that all peoples will benefit from this kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is going to start small, but in the end it's going to be a global enterprise. And that, that would have been an incredibly hard saying for the self-righteous Jew, for the one who thought himself better than the Gentile and who eagerly awaited the Gentile's destruction, that would have been very hard for him to accept. As in Psalm 78, it is the mercy of God that confounds him. It makes Jesus' message hard to accept, even when it is understood. But to those who have seen their need for God's mercy and responded to it, to those who have ears to hear, these parables aren't confounding. They're clarifying. Jesus isn't acting. He isn't entering into judgment according to the timetable they expected. And why not? It's because the kingdom of heaven is designed to extend mercy to all the nations. That couldn't have happened if Jesus entered into judgment immediately. The gospel had not yet gone out to the nations. So if Jesus judged the earth immediately, they would have all been destroyed. But in making this delay, their salvation becomes possible. A self-righteous Israelite couldn't accept that fact. But a guy like Matthew could. The poor in spirit, they can understand this. And so to these, the parable answered questions. But to the self-righteous, it only made Jesus' message more perplexing. It only made his message harder to accept. So, at the beginning of today's message, I asked this question. How do we wait for the coming of the kingdom of heaven? Suppose that we do have a zeal for God's righteousness. Suppose we have a holy longing to see the glory of God manifested and exalted across the entire world. How then do we still manage to find the strength to wait? The answer is right here. It is in the mercy of God. It is by being merciful. Last week I said that My job from week to week, as I step into the pulpit, the way I understand my job from week to week is to see you formed into the image of Christ, through the preaching of God's Word. And I I can do this a number of different ways, either by instructing you or encouraging you, maybe even by admonishing you. And I said that if you're going to be formed into the image of Christ, then you must have this zeal for righteousness that makes you impatient for the kingdom of heaven. I said that you should be eagerly awaiting the coming destruction of evil. That is the character of God. That's what He longs for. That's what He looks forward to. And you should as well. 
Well, here's the other side of that coin. If you're going to be like God, then you must not only have a zeal for righteousness, but you must also be merciful. Again, I said last week that the picture we have in Scripture is as if the bow of God's wrath is constantly stretched back and ready at any moment to be unleashed upon the wicked, and it is only by an incredible feat of power that He keeps that bow cocked back and does not let it go. Well, it is His mercy that makes that possible. God's merciful grace to the sinner is the only thing that restrains Him. There is a tension in God between His desire for justice and His desire to extend grace. Both of those qualities exist in God. And if you are to be like Him, if you are to be like Christ, then there must be a mixture of these qualities in you as well. So should you long for the destruction of evil? Yes, absolutely. But should you also long to see grace extended to the wicked as well? Again, yes. To use our illustration from last week, you should hate the fact that 125,000 babies are aborted across the world every day. And yet you should also desire to see those who perform these abortions forgiven. It's a both and. You must learn to hate evil and yet love the sinner. And if you can learn to think like that, to view the world through this sort of paradigm, with these two characteristics in mind, both justice and grace, and not just one or the other, but both of them together, it is then that you'll begin to think about sin and evil in the way that God does. And it is then that I dare say that you will also begin to truly comprehend the beauty, and also the mysterious and awe-inspiring majesty of God. Our God is not a simple God. He is Himself a parable, an enigma. There is wisdom and knowledge in God that is simply too wonderful for us, too high for us to understand. If you can get these two ideas down, start to live them out, you'll start to understand that at least a little bit. And you'll worship. So what can we do to see these characteristics formed in us? And what does it look like when these qualities are mixed together in us at the same time? We'll discuss the answer to those questions tonight at 6 o'clock. Until then, let's just close by praising God for His greatness. Let's pray.